So last Sunday, Stephen did a great job kind of beginning to transition in the port of, portion of Colossians that talks about how our faith gets played out in real life. And uh, Colossians 3.2 is really was the key verse there. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. As followers of Jesus, we are to have a different focus. We are to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. But that does not mean that the things of this world don't matter. It doesn't mean that we ignore how we live out our faith. In fact, it means just the opposite. Because we are setting our minds on things above, we're going to be even more careful in how we live our lives and looking for opportunities to live out our faith. And as we continue on in Colossians 3 today, we come to a very practical area Uh, where we can live out our faith, as we'll jump in here in a little bit into verse 18. And we're going to look at the dynamics of living out our faith within the context of family. It probably won't surprise us that he addresses wives, that he addresses husbands, that he addresses children, that he addresses fathers. But there might be something that, that requires a little bit of explanation And that is, on the back end of this passage, he also addresses slaves and masters in this context of family dynamics. And uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. In fact, we're really not going to spend any time on it later, other than I just want to clarify, uh, to help us understand why he addresses this in this context. When we think about slavery, most of us probably immediately think about that awful stain on our country's history you know, through the 18th and 19th centuries and uh, you know, new world slavery, as we might call it, what, what was experienced um, here in America, that, that is not really, doesn't have a whole lot in common with servitude in the New Testament because in many cases, uh, what you see in the New Testament is the people who became servants did so in many cases voluntarily. They did so in some cases because it enabled them to uh, find economic advancement in some way. Or maybe it was to pay off a debt or that kind of a thing. As opposed to the other type of slavery that was for the master's benefit and not at all in any way for the benefit of the, the servant, the slave. Um, we, we see this a, a little different in the New Testament. And so although there are exceptions to that and there were times in the, in the, the Old Testament where People had to pay off a debt to society, for example, and they were forced into servitude. Or perhaps they were taken as prisoners of war, and they were forced into servitude that way. But in many cases, they kind of became part of the family unit. And so just have that perspective as we read this. If you think, what in the world is that doing there? That's as much as we have time to to talk about it today because I want to spend most of our time on the other family dynamics that apply Uh, more practically to where we live. So let's just begin reading in Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. 
Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So let's start with verse 18 and this instruction. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. First thing I want us to see today is that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now that might raise a question for us in our minds. And the question is, okay, this was written a long time ago. It was written in a particular context. Does this still apply to us today? We live in the 21st century where we are all about women's rights, where we are all about empowering women in a variety of different ways. And so the question is a legitimate question to ask. Does this still apply? Is this, is this still how relationships are supposed to work within the home? And the short answer is yes. And I'll explain why when we understand what this means. When we understand and apply this concept appropriately. You know, one of the things that it's important to remember if, if, if we ever attempted to make the case of, well, this was written you know, to that culture and in a different time and a different setting, and it's because of the culture that he said that, we need to keep in mind that the instructions that Paul gives to husbands and wives, and we'll be talking in a, a little bit more later in about Ephesians chapter 5, wives submit to your husbands, but, then, but it says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is 100% countercultural to, to, to what they were dealing with at that time. This is a time where men almost owned their wives. And so the thought of serving your wife, of, of treating her as an equal and treating her as valuable rather than treating her as property, that's completely countercultural. So we really cannot make the argument that he's just speaking to the culture because what he said was so against the culture. And by the way, it still is. Start talking to wives about submitting to their husbands. That's countercultural. That, that's not a message that, that goes over very well. But I think it's important for us to understand a couple of things. First of all, the submission being described here is voluntary and self-imposed. It says, submit yourselves to your husbands. Not that this is being forced on you because you are in some way inferior. And I want to say that as clearly as we possibly can, that a wife is not inferior in any way to her husband. This submission is self-imposed. It's voluntary. And if the husband is seeking to force his wife into submission, there's another word for that. It's called abuse. The submission that is forced behavior is not submission. That's abuse. And if you find yourself, ladies, in an abusive situation, no, that is not what we're talking about here. And get help. Reach out for help. Get out of a position where you are in danger. I mean, just don't subject yourself to that. Um, look for help. Look for help. But this is speaking here to a... a a relationship where the wife is to submit to her husband uh, knowing, as we'll talk about here in a moment, that the husband is going to lead her with an attitude and a heart of service. That's the type of submission that he's talking about here. Um, it, it, it's, it, it really, the bottom line is this, that you, you go back again to Ephesians 5 and, and you see that the relationship between a husband and wife is primarily a picture of of Christ's relationship with the church. That's the point. 
And so when it says, wives, submit to your husbands because this is fitting in the Lord, that's what it's getting at. It reflects the dynamic of the Christ and church relationship. Now, obviously, that is not a perfect illustration because as husbands, we aren't perfect like Christ was. But this is the ideal. This is Christ loved his bride and gave himself up for her. So that's how a husband is to love and lead his wife. But then just as the church submits to Christ and looks to Christ as, as its lead, that's what he says should happen. That this is to be a picture of marriage. And marriage is a great tool for sharpening our rough edges. Wouldn't you agree, those of you that are married? There are two things in my life that have challenged me the most and helped me grow in my faith the most. One, getting married, and two, having children. And we're going to talk about both of those today. But those family dynamics are an opportunity, and that's really the point I want you to hear in all of this, and even relationships outside the family, view them as an opportunity to practice what it means to serve God. That's the point. When it says, wives, submit to your husbands, that's an opportunity for you to practice submitting to God. And, you know, when, when we find ourselves in a marriage relationship, there are plenty of opportunities for God to do a work and to transform our hearts. Um, you know, when, when my wife and I, Sean, when we got married a long time ago, 30 years ago now, we were 22 years old, young and clueless, basically. Or at least I'll say I was. She can speak for herself. I was a little bit clueless. But here's what I learned when I got married real quickly. I learned how selfish I was. I learned how much growth I needed, and it exposed those types of things. And the same thing about being a parent. That will quickly expose your selfishness as well. And so I look at those things, and I say, what great growth opportunities. Don't you like that word? A growth opportunity we have. When we are in the midst of these family types of relationships, because it helps us to see, man, this is where I need to grow. And it's a great training ground. Wives, I want to encourage you to view submitting to your husband as a great training ground for learning to submit to God. Now, I don't know your specific situation, but can I just take a wild guess and Imagine that, ladies, some of you have some control issues. Would that be fair to say? If you would admit that and say, yes, it is difficult for me to release control. And if that's the case, God has blessed you with an opportunity to submit to your husband, right? I mean, seriously, this is an opportunity to work on an area that maybe needs some, some work, an area that needs to be smoothed over a little bit. And so that's the way... We need to view it. Now, we're going to move on in a minute and talk about, guys, our part to that, because you can't really speak to one without the other. Both of these have to go hand in hand. If you have a, a wife trying to submit to her husband who isn't serving and leading her, that doesn't work. If you have a husband who's trying to serve and lead his wife who's unwilling to submit to him, that doesn't work. So both of them need to go hand in hand. But let me just mention three things, ladies, that I, I think will be helpful, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But when it comes to this idea of a wife submitting to her husband, number one, is to remember that this flies in the face of society, so know that you will offend people if you teach and practice submitting to your husband. You're just going to offend some people. There are going to be some people who think you're nuts. There are going to be some people who criticize you and call you weak and all these other things. So just be prepared on the front end 
that this is an offensive concept to many. Second thing, let me just tell you this. Your husband most likely won't fight you for control. If you grab the reins and insist on being in control, he's probably going to let you. Unless he's completely domineering and then that's a whole different issue. But I'm going to tell you, most of the time, men are, are, are happy to step back and let their wives step forward and lead. So if you really want him to step up, you need to step down and create some room for him to step up and lead. And then the third thing, if you want to inspire your husband to lead more, offer genuine encouragement and express appreciation when he does lead. Can I just tell you the worst thing you can do is to nag him and hound him about how he's not leading well. And maybe compare him to somebody else. Well, so-and-so does this, and you don't measure up. Can I, can I just let you, I've said this many times from stage before, so I don't know how much of a secret it is, but some of you never heard me say this before. Here's my little secret is that most husbands are, are very insecure and don't feel like they're leading the way they're supposed to. And so if, you're, if, if all they're hearing is, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, that's going to feed that insecurity. The best thing you can do is, if you really want to inspire them to lead is to encourage them. And when they do it well, to point it out and say, thank you, and I appreciate that, and that goes a long way. Verse 19. Let's move on to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the second thing we see in the Scripture today is that husbands are to love their wives. This is a, um, an imperative given repeatedly throughout Scripture, and it's because God knows what we need, Right? God knows that as men, we need to be reminded of the importance of loving our wives. And God knows that the thing that a wife needs more than anything else from her husband is to be loved by him. Man, let me just say that again. Your wife needs you to love her. She needs for you to love her. Not just to tolerate her. Not just to live with her. Not even just to provide for her. Your wife needs you to love her. And as a father of two girls, this is something that has become even more clear to me, watching two little girls grow up and, and to see just this, what has been instilled in them is this desire to one day be loved by a man and by a husband who's going to love her and care for her. Uh, I just believe that's something that God puts in, in, in the heart of a, of a woman. So how do we do that? Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is, husbands, if you want to know how to love your wives, take a long look at the cross. There's your answer. Look at the way Jesus loved us by giving his life for us, by laying his life down to become our payment for sin. Now, obviously, we're not becoming a payment for sin, but we are sacrificing ourselves on behalf of our wives. That's what it tells us to do. And, and as I said before, one of the things that I learned really early on in marriage is that I'm very selfish. And that by nature, I'm more interested in my own comfort than I am in serving the needs of my wife. 
And so marriage has been a great training ground. And, and uh, I've learned a lot by doing it wrong, by the way. Probably more from mistakes than anything else. And I'm still very much a work in progress, as we all are. But it's an opportunity for us to learn to, to love God by loving our wives. The word that is used here is the word for godly love. It's the word agape. It's this uh, sacrificial love. You've heard this word before, right? Many of you probably have heard before that there are basically four words in the ancient Greek for love. One was agape. The other three, uh, one is the word philia, which means a brotherly or a friendship type of a love. One is the word eros, which means a romantic type of love. And one is the word storge, which is a family-based type of a love. And here's the thing that's interesting about a marriage relationship. Marriage is the only relationship where all four types of love are needed. We, it's important that, that we have friendship love. It's important that we have romantic love. It's important that we have family-based love. And it certainly is important that we love one another unconditionally, this agape love. All four of those types of love should be evident in the marriage dynamic. But the one specifically called out here to husbands is agape. Love your wives unconditionally um, and be selfless with them. So let's make this practical. What does that look like for us? Let's just take an example because I I don't know about you. I learn best from, okay, what's a real life example where this might happen? Let's say, for example, guys, that you are married to a woman who uh, one of her primary love languages, the way that she feels and receives love the most, is quality time. In other words, in order for her to really feel love, she just needs to be with you, to spend time with you. And it may not be that you don't want to spend time with her, but it may just be that there are other things that you enjoy doing. You know, I work hard, I'm exhausted when I get home, and so, um, you know, I want to have time to myself, or I, I want to uh, just sit and front of a TV or I want to go play video games or on the weekends I want to go play golf or I'm into woodworking and I just want to get in my shop and do that or whatever, right? The list could go on and on and on. And when those things take us away from our wives who need that quality time for us, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, right, that this this probably isn't the best way to sacrificially love our wives, So what do you do about it? I mean, what am I saying? Am I saying you can never have time to yourself? No, not at all. That's not the point at all. But the point is that we evaluate those things in light of, is my first priority that I'm loving my wife well, even if that means sacrificing, even if that means doing some things that are uncomfortable, even if that means not doing things that I would prefer to be doing if it were just left up to me? The bottom line is this, I mean, and I say this, I don't want this to sound, you know, like I'm being sarcastic, or just seriously, it's not like God is asking us to die on the cross for our wives. Jesus did that already, right? I mean, that major sacrifice has already been taken care of. He's simply asking us to love them unconditionally and selflessly. He's asking us to die to self, and the problem is we want to live for self, We want to do what we want to do. And so you can see where this is a great training ground. Because as men, where I was, and I know I'm speaking in generalities here, but I would say speaking in generalities, a lot of times control is a real common issue for females. And a lot of times selfishness 
is a real issue for males. And so this is an opportunity for us to work out that selfishness by serving our wives. One of the things that I can tell you is that this isn't going to happen because of our own effort and our own ability. See, as amazing as my wife is, and she really is, I don't have it in me to serve her and love her the way she needs to be served and loved. That's not an indictment on her. That's an indictment on me because I know I'm sinful and I know that I'm selfish by nature. It's going to take the transforming work of Christ in me and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in me to be able to love my wife the way she needs to be loved. And that's the way we have to view this. Lord, this is an opportunity for you to do your work in me, and I can lean on you to do that. Second part of verse 19, again, makes it real practical. It says, husbands, love your wives, and it says, do not be harsh with them. And there are a couple of ways to understand this word harsh. It can mean harsh, or it can mean embittered. And I want us to look at both of them, because I think both are helpful. The idea of harsh, we know what harshness means, right? I I saw an example of this last weekend. We went to visit our daughter, uh, Autumn, in College Station, and um, we were at the dog park with Oakley. If you know anything about Autumn, you know Oakley. And so we were there at the dog park, and there was a young man that came over, and he was very nice. He was talking with us, very respectful. And then he turns around later, and Thomas, Thomas, and he's talking to his little brother. Just kind of real harsh voice, right? And I watched this little kid just, just kind of cower when his big brother would do that. And I thought, man, that, you know, that was an example, not in a marriage. But how often do you see that happening within a marriage? A husband speaking to his wife that way. Or, frankly, it goes the other way around, too. This is not just a, it, wives speak harshly to their husbands very often as well. So it's a two-way street. But when that happens, especially guys, I, you know, you don't always see physically, but, man, I've just seen that where, where a wife will just, you just see her just kind of crumbling inside because her husband is speaking so harshly to her. I don't know if we fully understand how much damage is done when we do that with one another. So don't be harsh with them. Or another way of understanding that is, is don't become embittered. That's another, another way that word can be translated. The New American Standard said, Husbands, love your wives and do not become bitter against them. Which is a whole other uh, thing there as well. Of, you know, is there something that you have been hurt in some way and you have not forgiven? And you're, you're harboring bitterness toward your wife? Or is it frankly because you're just selfish and your wife calls you out on it and you don't like it? And you become bitter because you don't want to be told those things. We can harbor that bitterness inside and, and uh, man, that's not a good place to be. But if we've experienced the forgiveness that comes through Christ, then how do we not pass that on, right? So that's the whole point. We, we know and experience God's forgiveness and we pass it on to others. By the way, just real quickly, guys, one specific thing. Let me just encourage you with this. That, you know what studies show that there's one thing that leads to marital satisfaction more than anything else? And it's praying with your wives. But very few Christian couples do it. Saw one uh, report that said 4%, one that said 11%. Either way, that's a, that's a low percentage. A Gallup poll is back in 1997. I know the data's a little bit old, but it showed that of couples who pray together regularly, the divorce rate is... One in every 1,152 couples. It's a simple thing. Pray with your wife. Come, we'll help you if we get started. I know I need to move on. I'm running low on time. But, but 
just start somewhere and reach out for help if, if you need help there. All right, verse 20. Let's move on to verse 20. Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Here's the third thing. Children are to obey their parents in everything. Now, sons and daughters, I'm going to go a little bit easier on you today because we don't have as much time to spend here as we would like. But let's just, let's just say what the Scripture says. Children, obey your parents in what? It says everything, right? In everything. Not just when you agree, not just when it's comfortable, not just when you like it. Now, obviously, if your parents are telling you, you know, go murder somebody, you don't want to obey them in that, right? You don't obey them in an area that causes you to violate God's standards, but that's not normally the case. Normally, the case is clean up your room, get off your phone, you know, come be a part of our family, whatever it may be. And it says here, children are to obey their parents in everything, everything. The reason we do that, why do we do that? It says, for this pleases the Lord. It's the same reason for all of this. Just as a wife can practice submission to to God by the way that she treats her husband, and a husband can practice serving God in the way he serves his wife, a child can practice obedience to God by obeying their parents. That's what Scripture teaches. And so it's an opportunity for training. It's an opportunity to grow in your faith. And here's the simplest way I can put this. Sons and daughters, if you aren't honoring your parents... You aren't honoring God. It's as simple as that. Children, obey your parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. And then the last thing that it, that it touches on here is the relationship between fathers and their children. Verse 21, fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Fourth thing I want us to see is that fathers are not to embitter their children. And the reason for that, it says, they will become discouraged. Um, dads, we have, a, we have a heavy weight on our shoulders, but also an incredible opportunity. Big responsibility, but incredible opportunity. And that is that we get to represent Christ to our church. I mean, to our, excuse me, to our wives. We get to represent Christ to our wives. And we get to represent our Heavenly Father to our children. What, what a responsibility, but what also an amazing privilege. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, and I want to be very clear in saying we aren't God to them, okay? We're not their Savior. Wives, don't look to your husband as your Savior. Look to Jesus, and same for children. So we're, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, that we have that opportunity to represent who God is to the members of our family. What an incredible and awesome privilege and responsibility that is. And so the instruction that's given to fathers here is do not embitter your children. That word embitter means to stir up, to arouse, to anger, to provoke, irritate, or incite. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure I've done every one of those with my kids, right? It's it's not that we're going to do this perfectly, but when we fail... We acknowledge it. We ask for forgiveness from them and from God. And and we say, I want to do better. And I want to focus on these things in, in helping to create an environment where my children won't become embittered. See, what, what children need is not 
parents, and specifically we're talking fathers here, but you can see how this would apply moms to you as well. But children don't need parents who are perfect. Children need parents who are real, who love Jesus, and they know it. And I'm going to tell you right now that if your kids know that you are genuinely seeking to follow Christ, they're not going to become embittered. They're just not. There's going to be grace and forgiveness there. So let me leave you with two suggestions, parents, and specifically dads. Fathers, first of all, lead your children spiritually. Dad, you lead your children spiritually. Don't, don't let mom do that or, or expect mom to do that. You be the one who takes the initiative. Read those Bible stories with them to pray for them and with them. You be the one who says, we're going to church as a family. We're going to serve together. Take that initiative to lead your children spiritually. And the second thing is invest in them relationally. Fathers, invest relationally in your kids that means if you've got little girls that want to have tea parties with their baby dolls, then you sit down and have a tea party with their baby dolls. If you've got little boys that want to get on the ground and wrestle around and roughhouse, then do it. I mean, get, get involved. If you're able to coach their sports team, coach their teams, if you're able to, to be a part of their world, be a part of their life, invest in them relationally. Guys, we could go on and on and on talking about family dynamics, but we do need to, to conclude and I just want to conclude with this. All of these things that we're talking about, I can't emphasize this enough. These are not things that we do in our own ability. These are things that we have to depend on God for. And because we're depending on God, you know what that does? It takes away any sense of pride or any sense, you know, it's not going to be a husband. Hey, I did the dishes. I'm going to strut around like a peacock, you know, all proud of what I've done. That's not the point. Wives, that you, if you're off telling all the other women what a great job you're doing, submit it to your husband. You're missing the point. Children, if it's I'm obeying my parents, but let me tell you what a great job I'm doing. No, it's I can't do this. And when it gets done right in my life, it's because Jesus is doing something through me. So there's humility required there. There's faith required there. There's a dependence on God. Lord, we desperately need you and we need you to work in our lives. And that's the kind of prayer that we need to pray. In fact, that's what I want us to pray now. So let's pray together. Lord, right now, I do pray for families. Father, my heart breaks when I know that, that, that there are relationships between husbands and wives that aren't what they need to be, between children and parents that are broken. God, would you do your work that only you can do to transform hearts and, God, we, we just, we pray for the family units of our community, of our church, of those sitting in this room right now, those watching online right now. God, would you step into those families and do what only you can do? And Lord, I pray for boldness where help is needed to reach out for help. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.